right. <laughs> All right, good evening. We are going to mix things up just a little bit tonight. So last week we finished off Matthew chapter 12, but instead of starting up in verse 1 of 13, we're going to be skipping ahead to verse 10. You see, Matthew 13 makes a change in the way Jesus interacts with the masses. And I want you to think about just kind of a broad overview of Matthew up to this point and consider how Jesus' teaching could be described. The first four chapters of Matthew can broadly be summarized as Jesus' birth and preparation. He's born, grows up, is baptized, tempted, gathers the disciples, and through it all, we see his obedience to his parents, we see uh, the obedience to the law of Moses given by God, and we are seeing him growing in wisdom and in stature. Chapter 5 through 7, go ahead and advance it, there we go. Uh, we see him giving, or chapters 5 through 7, we see him giving the Sermon on the Mount, uh, during which he teaches the masses just openly and plainly for all to hear him. And then chapters 8 and 9 shows a sampling of Jesus' earthly ministry, uh, how he traveled through the area, healing the sick, causing the blind to see, the lame to walk, casting out demons. Uh, but we didn't see a lengthy sermon. Even without the lengthy sermon, uh, like the Sermon on the Mount we see in chapters 5 through 7, we're still aware of how he taught during this time. Uh, in Matthew 9.35, we're told, And Jesus went out or went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When seeing the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So during this time of his ministry, we can see that God was, or Jesus was still going to places where there would have potentially been a large crowd like the synagogue, and at which point he would have openly proclaimed the gospel. And then finally in chapters 11 and 12, we see the growing opposition to Christ, not just from the religious leaders, but also from the people in general. But during all this time, we still see that Christ freely and openly proclaims the gospel, even as he begins to withdraw from them, withdrawal from them as a result of their opposition to him. So during this time, how did Jesus speak to the people? Just to this broad overview we've done, how would you characterize Jesus' teaching to the people? Did he speak in riddles? What? Were you all here for the first 12 chapters of Matthew? I'm not sure anymore. Did, he, did Jesus speak in riddles during this time? Plainly, yeah, he spoke plainly. Uh, he, he taught them plainly in the Beatitudes. He covered a wide range of topics, ranging from uh, dealing with the sin of anger to lust and divorce, on giving oaths and how to pray, on anxiety, on fasting. Jesus taught everyone plainly and directly. But as we come to chapter 13, we're going to see that on the same day that he is, uh, shuns his mother and his brothers who wanted to drag him away, as we went over last week, we see him leave the house he was teaching in there, he goes off to the Sea of Galilee, gets on a boat, and begins to teach the crowds as usual. But this time, there's something a little different going on. Instead of teaching them like he normally does, I want you to take a look at Matthew, 13, uh, Matthew chapter 13, verse 3, and tell me, someone, what is Jesus doing that's so different? Yeah. Speaking, uh, speaking in parables? Yeah, he's teaching them in par parables. And while we're only told about this one parable at the beginning, the parable of the sower and the seed, we are aware that uh, it seems like Jesus was teaching many parables, uh, because that's exactly what it says in verse 3. He taught them with many parables. From this point on, 
and the rest of Matthew, we're going to see that Jesus never again teaches the crowds so plainly as he did from Matthew chapter 1 through Matthew chapter 12. Now that's a bold claim on my part, right? To say that Jesus never did something ever again. And hopefully you're already wondering, is that, is that really true? Are you sure about that? You want, to, you want to maybe read through Matthew again before you come up here? Maybe take a week? Well, the, the answer is yes. And I can boldly and confidently say this. Now, you could do an immersive study. Immersive studies are great things to do. So you could do this in which you go through the rest of the math, uh, book of Matthew and say, is this right? And you're going to see that uh, Jesus speaks plainly only when he's teaching his disciples or he's speaking one-on-one with someone or when he's rebuking the, uh, the religious leaders at the time. And what we'll also see, if you continue to do this study, is you would see that often he'd take that one-on-one interaction he had with someone, and he'd turn to the crowds that were there, and then he would tell them a parable based on that one-to-one interaction. And that would be a great study, but there's an alternative. Uh, you could just look at Matthew chapter 13, verse 34, which says, All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. Now, if you're anything like me, uh, even after reading that, there's this temptation to go, did he really? Like, do we really know that? Like, like what, if, what if it turns out that this verse in Matthew chapter 13, 13, 34, what if that's just talking about his interaction with the crowd here in Matthew chapter 13? There's a lot of parables we're going to be going over in Matthew 13. So maybe this is only for this one, one chapter. And I have to admit, there's a temptation, if I'm being brutally honest in my own heart, to want to search the scriptures and kind of prove my own idea right. They say, well, hold on. I, I know that it says this in this verse, but there's no way that can be true. So I'm going to do a study to prove that this isn't true. Uh, rather than coming to the scriptures and saying, am I understanding this? I'm going to read the scriptures and let God be the one in charge of things and let God be the one to reveal what he has already revealed through the scriptures to me. But the plain and simple truth is God is not being coy. He's not being exaggeratory here in uh, verse 34 of Matthew 13. The first half of Jesus' ministry was a time that the world had never got to experience since or before then. It's never going to experience until Christ comes again. The time that Jesus spoke plainly and directly for all who would hear him. But having been rejected by the religious leaders, having been rejected by the people and towns he was ministering to, remember we went over that in Matthew eleven twenty, where Jesus pronounced woes on these cities because if, if Sodom and Gomorrah had seen what he had done, they would have repented. And even being rejected by his own family, Jesus changes the way he teaches the crowds. Yeah, Fox. Um, did he, did, so he, told, he spoke to everyone in parables from that time on, correct? Yes. What about the two disciples on the road to Emmaus? Did he speak to them in parables? Well, Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables. Whenever Jesus spoke one-on-one with someone, uh, specifically when he spoke to the disciples, and we're going to talk about this as we go through this passage, but when he spoke to the disciples, he still explained the meaning of the parables, and he taught them directly. But for the crowds at large, uh, Jesus withdrew that special privilege and only spoke to them in parables. Now, this changing in preaching styles is kind of a big deal. Uh, <laughs> Jesus has removed some of this grace that he was giving by just teaching so plainly and openly. And it was really, really noticeable to the point that the disciples, after sitting here and listening to Jesus teaching these parables, 
they're confused. And they came up to Jesus in verse 10, and the disciples ask him something. What did the disciples ask Jesus in Matthew chapter 13, verse 10? Yes. Why do you speak to them in parables? Why do you, yeah, why do you speak, why are you talking to people in parables? You didn't used to do this. And that's going to be the title for today's lesson. Why did Jesus speak in parables? So let's go ahead and read our passage for tonight. This is Matthew chapter 13. We're going to be reading verses 10 through 17. We're going to see the disciples ask the question, why are you speaking in parables? And then we're going to see Jesus gives them an explanation. So Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 10. Then the disciples came to him and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, with their eyes or, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So the Gospel of Matthew includes 20 parables, which we have up here, and seven of them uh, are going to take place right here in Matthew chapter 13. They are the sower and the seeds, the weeds, the mustard seed, the leaven, the hidden treasures, the pearl, the great value, and the fisherman's net. All together, throughout the Gospels, we're going to see 39 different parables that Jesus taught. So we're going to be going over a lot of parables in the coming weeks. And, and just when you think we're done with them, we're actually going to jump back into them because there's another section in Matthew where they pick up and they do uh, another, another quick barrage of parables. Uh, so I think we can safely say that Jesus thought that teaching in parables was an important way of teaching at certain times. But can you define what is a parable? Like this happens to me a lot. Uh, I'll be using a word and my, my kids will go, what's that word mean, dad? And I'm like, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I can use it in a sentence. And I know, I know I know what it means. But whenever I try to define it, I can't do it. Uh, so, is a parable the same thing as, as one of Aesop's fables? Oh, what's a parable? It's an allegory. It's like a story that's used to portray a spiritual meaning. Okay, an allegory or a story to portray a spiritual meaning. Okay. Anyone got another definition? Yeah, folks? A story used to prove a point. A story used to prove a point. Okay. Okay. Let's work on this. So, a, a fable. Uh, a fable is just a simple story using animal characters with some kind of moral lesson at the end of it. Uh, obviously, this is not what a parable is. Uh, even if you discount the fact that a fable uses animals and parables use people, uh, this is just, it's not a good definition for what a parable is. Because a parable is something more than just teaching, what a, a moral a teaching with a moral lesson. Uh, instead, we see that on the very surface, a secular definition of what a parable is, 
is a simple story using human characters illustrating a moral or religious lesson. And yeah, that, that works on a secular level, but I feel like this definition, which I just grabbed off the internet, you know, Merriam-Webster, uh, I feel like it's a little bit lacking when we're talking about what Jesus is doing when he teaches a parable. So as we work through today's passage, we're going to have two goals. The first goal is to understand why Jesus taught in parables. And the second goal is going to be to create a biblical definition for what a parable is as we go over Jesus' explanation for why he speaks in parables. And we're going to see Jesus gives three reasons as to why he speaks in parables. Uh, For the first reason, we're going to look at verse 11. When Jesus is asked why he's speaking in parables, his immediate response is to say, so that you can know the secrets or the mysteries, depending on which translation of the Bible you're using, of the kingdom of heaven. Now, we've talked about this word mystery in the past, haven't we? Do you all recall that? I know I've talked. It's something that uh, I misunderstood early on, and I had a, a, young, a young teacher pull me aside and say, Matthew, you got everything wrong. Uh, <laughs> that is not what a mystery means. And so it's really stuck in my head. Uh, but a mystery, in the biblical sense, is it talking about something like Sherlock Holmes or Agatha Christie, where you come onto a scene, it was a locked door, you open it, and there's a dead man on the floor. And you've got to find the clues and put them together and find, figure out who done it. Is that what the Bible's talking about when it says a mystery? So I'm going to speak with confidence. No. no. Okay, you didn't speak with confidence, but we're going to take it. No, uh, that is not what a mystery is uh, when we're talking about the New Testament. Uh, we're talking about something that used to be unknown, but is now revealed to us. Uh, if this were a mystery novel, when the New Testament talks about the mystery, uh, this would be the point of the novel where you turn the last page and you're reading the about the author on the back flap. Everything's been revealed at this point. All the clues have been discovered. Some guy wearing a fedora and a trench coat has gathered everyone together. He's told you the butler did it, and you're driving home happy in the knowledge of how this occurred. Jesus is saying that the point of the parable is to reveal things about the kingdom of God that were previously hidden away. Now, in Luke's account of this exchange between Jesus and the disciples, where they say, why are you doing this? Uh, Jesus actually follows up them, uh, follows up this account immediately by giving them the parable of a jar and a lamp. Uh, in Luke 8, verses 16 to 18, uh, Jesus says, No one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care then of how you hear, for uh, to the one who has more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Jesus has no desire for us to be mindless or uninformed followers of him, such that he would intentionally make it hard to understand what it is he's trying to teach us. Uh, nor would he try to hide away understanding from us uh, who believe in him. The point of a parable is to make it easier for understand complicated spiritual matters. But there is a catch. There's a condition that has to exist for you to be able to understand the parable. Take a look at verse 11. And tell me, what is the condition? Who thinks they know? Looking at verse 11, there's a condition that comes or has to come for you to understand a parable. Fox going once, fox going twice. Oh, next to the fox. I saw that hand. What is it? Uh, would it be that you have to be a disciple of Jesus or, have, or 
be told the specific meaning of the paragraph. Uh, it's close. You're close. <laughs> Taylor? Yes, you're you're on the right track. You're on the right track. You'd have to once believe. Okay, belief, having to believe in Jesus, having to be a disciple. You guys are all on the right track. Uh, you're dancing around it just a little bit. It's, I'm, I'm looking for something real easy. It's it's literally written on the page. What was the question? <laughs> what was the question? The question is, uh, the point of a parable is to be understood, to reveal the secrets, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But there is a condition that has to exist. To it has to be revealed to you. That's it. Uh, it has to be given. It has to be given. And oh, that is an inflammatory statement to an unbeliever. Anytime you tell an unbeliever that God gives understanding or God gives salvation or God gives forgiveness to those it pleases him to give it to, or anytime you say something that boldly pro proclaims God as the one who has the rightful authority over them, oh, you're going to quickly see them get mad you're going to see that resentment and anger in their eyes that they don't get to idolize themselves. But Jesus says unequivocally, uh, that means without any room for argument whatsoever, that understanding a parable must be given to you. And the good news about this is that for the Christian, uh, if you are lacking in understanding, so you come to a parable, you read it, and you're like, I don't get this. If that's you, all you have to do is ask God for understanding. In James 1, 5, it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. God gives wisdom generously, abundantly. It's given in such abundant amounts that in Proverbs, wisdom is described as a lady calling out for people to come to her on a major intersection of a street. Like, like she's not in some back alley where you have to track her down and find her. She's at the main intersection saying, all who want it, come get wisdom. Now, unfortunately, people don't come. Uh, it's the point of the Proverbs that even though wisdom is readily available, people still go to their own folly. But God offers it abundantly. And the understanding, absolutely, the understanding of a parable absolutely has to be given. If we're to look here in Matthew 13, we see twice that the disciples themselves are totally clueless. They do not get the point of the parable at all. And Jesus has to explain it to them, this is what it means. We see it once for the sower and the seed, and we see it a second time uh, for the parable of the weeds. And again, lest we think this is a one-off thing, in Matthew 16, the disciples realize they forgot to bring some bread on a journey. And Jesus says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And <laughs> what do the disciples do? They start talking amongst themselves. Oh, Jesus is upset. We forgot bread. And Jesus says, do you guys really think I'm talking about bread right now? Now, I don't know about you, uh, but as I read these passages, there, there's a temptation in my heart that I want to laugh at how dense the disciples can be sometimes. And honestly, often Peter is the one. Uh, the man had such a devotion and a love for Christ, and he just he spoke too quickly sometimes. And so I have a tendency, I, I'm going to laugh. Like, oh man, if I had been there, I would have caught it. I mean, Jesus is at the Last Supper dipping the bread. And he says, whoever's dipping with me right now, he's the one who's going to betray me. Judas, go do what you're going to do. And the disciples go, where's Judas going? <laughs> do you think I could be the one that's going to betray Jesus? I mean, he's lit up a billboard and they're still missing it. But the truth of the matter is, every last one of us are absolutely as dense as the disciples are uh, or were. 
Without God patiently explaining these things to us, we would have missed it just as easily. Uh, so uh, let's update the definition. We, we've talked about one of the reasons why Christ uses, uses parables. So let's update our definition of what a parable is based on this. A parable is a simple story using human characters for the purpose of revealing to those chosen by God things that were previously hidden uh, and to obscure those concepts from those who have first chosen uh, to reject God. I think I skipped ahead, but that's okay. And you know, when I, when I think about a parable, I, I often come to this point, and this is often where I stop thinking about what the definition of a parable is. Uh, just that it's a simple story, it's supposed to reveal previously hidden spiritual concepts to those who are chosen to understand them, and its meaning is given by God. Okay, that's, that's a good definition, I can work with that. Uh, and, and I say this, and I grew up in a family where my mom and dad loved God, where my brothers and my sister loved God, and, and every night, my dad would bring us together for a quiet time, a devotional time, where we'd each take turns and read through a single chapter of the Bible together. Uh, but even with that, when I think about parables, this is where I stop. I'm like, yeah, this is it. But by the grace of God, despite my staunch opposition to him before I came to Christ, despite the fact that he knew that I would continue in opposition against him, even after coming to him, that though I had been saved, I wasn't perfect, I would continue to sin against him, that there would be days where all too much I'd feel an affinity with Paul. When he says, the good things I want to do, I do not do. The evil I do not want to do, that's the very thing I find myself doing. Despite that, despite all the negative sinful things that God knows to be true about me, by his grace and by his grace alone through Jesus Christ's death on the cross, by the sealing of the Holy Spirit, I, like the disciples, can rejoice in that I have been chosen to understand these parables. And for everyone here who is in Christ, you too belong in that group. Unfortunately, that's not true for everyone, is it? Because Jesus gives a second reason for why, uh, why he speaks in parables. In the second half of verse 11, we're told this reason. We read, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. The second reason Jesus had for speaking to them in parables was to hide away the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. This seems a bit contradictory, doesn't it? Like, we have two definitions up here, and they seem to be 100% opposed to one another. Jesus spoke in parables both to reveal the things that had been hidden away, and at the same time to hide away the things that he was revealing. Uh, so how can these two truths possibly coexist? Well, we've already talked about it. Uh, in, in verse, uh, the, the point of the parable was to reveal the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven specifically to, and only to, those that God had chosen to reveal it to. In verse 12, we see that Jesus is actually going to repeat the same idea, but he's going to do it in a slightly different wording, uh, kind of like he does in Proverbs. It's the same idea split across two verses with a little bit of different word, uh, wording. So in verse 12, he says, for the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. If you have something, let's say some money, and I see that you have some money, and I give you more, what would you say I'm doing at that point? Being foolish. Being foolish? 
Okay. What's <laughs> something else you might say? Thank you. You might say that. Okay, yeah. But, but, but what would you say that I'm specifically doing by giving you money? Yeah. I'm being generous. I'm being generous. Sure. Sure. Maybe depending on who it is, I might be being foolish. <laughs> you might be giving me money. <laughs> I'm giving you money, yeah? Now, what, what about the opposite? What if I see that you have very little money or no money? And I come and I take what little money you do have away from you. Or I take away, I see you have no money whatsoever, so I take away your food. Or I take away your home. What do you, what do you say that I'm doing? Stealing. I'm stealing? I'm being rude? I'm being mean? What if... Think about this. What if I have the authority to do this? What if I am morally righteous in, being, in doing this? What, what if I was justified in, in, in doing this? By any chance, does this remind you of another parable Jesus told? One where he took away what little money someone, someone had, gave it to someone else? Maybe? Yeah? Yeah, one? Okay, yeah, that, that did involve money. Not the one I'm thinking of, though. Not the, uh, not, not the one, the debtor. What's another one? Yeah. The parable of the talents. The parable of the talents, exactly. Yes, uh, the parable of the talents, Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. There's a man. He goes on a journey, but before he goes, he gathers three servants together. And he gives one of them five talents. Another one, two talents. And the third one, he gives one talent. The man who does five, what does he do with those five talents? He invests them. He invests them, and he doubles them. What about the man who had two talents? Same thing, right? Now, what did the man with one talent do? I, I heard it. Bur yes, buried it. Y'all can say it proudly. You don't got to be shy. He buried it. He was scared. And the master came back, and he called him a wicked servant. And he took away the talent that he had just buried in the ground, and he gave it to the man who had now 10 talents, who had doubled his investment. And the, the, the one who had buried it was actually punished. So coming back to our passage, understand that Jesus, and he's saying that the one who has little, that's going to be taken from him, he is morally justified in doing this. This isn't him being mean or stealing from him as if I were doing it. If I came and shook you down for lunch money, yeah, I'd be stealing. But Jesus is... The one with the authority. He is morally righteous in what he does. And he is condemning and punishing those who hear the parable and do not understand it. Now, is there something odd about that sentence to you? What do you think, Fox? Uh, that Jesus is the one who gets to decide if they understand the parable or not. He's saying that if, they don't, if he decides that they don't understand the parable then he's going to punish them for that. Yeah, doesn't that sound odd? Now we're going somewhere. With it. Don't stop here. We're going somewhere with here. Yeah, on the surface, yes, it does sound odd. Jesus has just said that understanding comes from God. But if you don't understand, you're going to be punished or condemned. That seems unfair to us on a human level. But uh, the reason why it's not unfair is because at first, I think I'm too behind. Keep going. Yeah, why condemn those who can't understand? The reason, next one, is because it wasn't hidden at first. We've got the order backwards in our thinking right now. Jesus didn't speak only in parables. The Bible has more than parables in it. In fact, going through the, the New Testament, the four Gospels, we talked about how there were 39 
uh, different parables, I believe he gives 45 different discourses, what they call it, where he just sits down and talks to people. Jesus did a lot more than speak in parables. The evidence of God's existence and authority as God exists even apart from the Bible. When we come to passages like this, yeah, we have a tendency to kind of get the order backwards in our mind. We go, wait a minute, God hides it and then punishes it because he hid it. No, that, that's backwards. Romans 1, verses 18 through 20, tells us the correct order of events. Uh, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So notice the correct order here. The correct order is that first, God made himself clearly known in creation. Then men observed those true things, the things they clearly perceived and knew about God. Then they suppressed the truth of what they knew, and that is when God pours out his wrath on them. That is when the punishment and condemnation comes, because they knew God was there, and they chose to suppress it. So likewise, here in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has clearly proclaimed who he was for everyone to hear. He's made it no secret that he was sent by the Father. He's made it no secret that he is here on a ministry of redemption. And we can see how the Pharisees know this, and they reject him because of it. That they want to keep that authority for themselves. In fact, they, they go to the point where even though it was undeniable that the works Jesus was doing were divine in nature, what did they do? Who did they describe that to? Did they describe that to God? They said he was uh, the devil himself. Yeah, they ascribed it to the devil. Even though they knew that he was doing divine from God works, they said, no, 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 no. It's, it's from Satan that he's doing these things. So let's update our definition of a parable again based on this second reason Christ gave. Uh, and this is actually going to be the same slide because I, I did it twice by accident. But the definition of a parable, it's a simple story using human characters for the purpose of revealing to those chosen by God previously hidden spiritual concepts, and to obscure those concepts from those who have first chosen to reject God. Now, there is a third reason Christ gives for why he speaks in parables, reading from verse 13. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, a prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, their eyes they can barely, or with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and I would turn and heal them. Christ's spoken prophecy, or parables, to fulfill prophecy. Uh, to fulfill the prophecy that had been written in Isaiah chapter 6, in verses 9 and 10. And there's two interesting things about this prophecy. First of all, understand. remember a couple weeks ago we were talking about how sometimes in the Old Testament and New Testament the, the wording was a little different? And that was because it was a difference of translation from the two different sources that we use to translate the Bible from. That's not the case here. Uh, the case here is that Jesus, as one who first wrote it, is summarizing it for us to understand it. Uh, but there, there's two interesting things about this passage. The first is that uh, this passage is only recorded here in Matthew. And uh, the companion passage that goes over this in Luke this isn't there. Now, why, why might that be? Who was Matthew written to? 
Oh, no, you're just fixing your hair, Mariah. Do you know that? What? Who is Matthew written to? <laughs> the Gentiles or the Israelites? 50-50 chance. Guess again? Israelites. Israelites, yes. Thank you for volunteering. You got to be careful. I, I see a little motion, a little <laughs> fixing the hair. I'm going to call. <laughs> Thank you, Mariah. Uh, so it was written to the Israelites. And because it was written to the Israelites, Matthew knew that his audience would understand this quote from Jesus. And Isaiah 6, where this quote comes from, we get to see Isaiah being called by the Lord to ministry. And I, I love this passage because I, I can just imagine how Isaiah would have felt here. You hear the voice of God booming from heaven saying, who will I send? Who will go? And Isaiah responds, here I am, send me. Right? I mean, you, you, can just, you can just see him. He's like a child, excited to get the answer in class. He's just got his hand stretched as far as he can. It's me, I'm here, I'll go. And it's a humbling response, because if I'm honest, sometimes when I get an opportunity to speak out on behalf of God, present the gospel, I get a little scared. And even though I know that this is a moment where God's calling me to be his ambassador, I kind of respond like Moses or Gideon. I go, who? Me? Are you, are you sure there's not someone else in this wine press who's a mighty warrior? Because I'm scared for my life right now. But Isaiah responds with enthusiasm. Here I am, send me. And then God tells Isaiah, okay, this is it. I'm going to tell you exactly how it's going to go. And Isaiah, okay, yeah, I'm ready. Tell me about it. He goes, I'm going to sing to the people. Yeah, I'm going to go to the people. And they ain't going to listen to you one bit. And that, what? And Isaiah goes, how long? He, he doesn't get upset about it. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't try to argue with God about it. He accepts it. And he says, okay, I accept this, but how long? And God says, until the cities are laid to waste. So, I mean, this is not a great thing for Isaiah. Yeah, you're all pumped up and ready to go. It turns out your ministry isn't going to do anything in your own eyes on a human level. And this is the second interesting thing to note about this quote. Because Jesus is quoting it here, he is linking himself to Isaiah's ministry. And the Israelites are going to understand this. They're going to know that what Jesus is saying is just like Isaiah's ministry, I'm here to deliver God's message, and you are not going to be responding to it. He's condemning them with this quote he's, he's giving them. Look again at verse 15. He says, For this people's heart have grown dull, but their eyes they can or with their ears, they can barely hear. With their eyes, they've closed, lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand it with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. According to these verses, why did the people close their eyes? Did y'all catch it? Because they didn't like his message. They didn't like his message. I mean, look at it again. It says, it didn't say they, their eyes are blind. It says they have closed their eyes. Why? Because if they had them open, they would see. If they had their ears open, they would hear, and they would understand in their heart, and they would turn away from the things they love more than God, and they would turn to God, and the people didn't want that. The people wanted to continue to worship their idols. So let's update our, our definition of a parable one last time to include all three reasons that Christ has given for why he speaks in parables. A parable, in the biblical sense, it's a simple story using human characters for the purpose of revealing to those chosen by God 
previously hidden spiritual concepts to obscure those concepts from those who have first chosen to reject God as prophesied in the scriptures. Yeah, Fox. But it says that they closed their eyes. Obviously, they were predestined to close their eyes by God. But does that mean they could have opened them and chose to believe? Or since they were, were they chosen by God to have closed their eyes and they didn't have a choice? So that is a great question. And what you're talking about is, um, I forget the fancy theological term for it, but the basic thing is people go, okay, if God has predestined some to be saved, then that means he's predestined some to go to hell. And the answer is no. Uh, we, we cannot say that. We can only say that God has predestined some to be chosen. On a human level, uh, you know, we understand that God has to choose us, but we also understand the Bible says that we have to respond to that. And there's, there's some sort of beautiful mystery here, something that God hasn't actually revealed to us yet. And maybe when we get to heaven, he's going to explain this to us. But there's, there's a duality there. God absolutely chooses those who are going to be saved. That's un- unarguable. But man also has a responsibility to respond to that. Uh, there, there's some who call it the doctrine of irresistible grace. Uh, God draws us and we will respond. Uh, but the, the overall question that are some people being predestined to not respond, the answer is no. Uh, people see God and their natural inclination is to reject God. We see that in Romans 1. Uh, we see that here in Isaiah. People see the truth, and they choose to reject it. It is God who says, I know you've rejected me. You were dead in your, trans- your sins and trespasses, but I made you alive so that you could respond to me. So good, good question, Fox. You guys know I love it when you think, uh, even, if, uh, even if you keep me on my toes. Yeah, Taylor? Um, what about people problems in their head that makes them not able to, like, say, even comprehend the world around them, possibly? Like... That is a great question. Uh, I feel like that might also go into the same territory of what people call the age of accountability, the point at which you're able to understand your own actions and respond in it. And all I can say is I am very thankful I'm not God, and I do not, uh, I'm not the one responsible for him to make uh, that decision one way or the other. We definitely know that it does appear the Bible tends to, to say that there is an occasion of accountability. It's something that I admit that um, I'm not, I don't have a strong stance on, um, but I, I, I want to say that our leadership here... Or like Okay. Okay. So see, I, I, knew, I knew that someone smarter than me, uh, like our leader, church leadership, would have a stance on this. Uh, and so I, I'm very thankful for these men who have researched this, and I, I, I fully bow to their, their knowledge on this matter. Yes? So when me and my siblings learned about Martin Luther, one of the reasons that we moved against was the Catholic sense of time So I think I see where you're going with this, and um, the, you're on the right track. 
Uh, more than being sympathetic, I'd say that God is compassionate, and at the same time, he is a righteous judge. And there is a certain point in a person's life where they are aware of what they're doing, and at that point, they choose to reject God. Uh, and that is the point at which they become account- accountable, and that rejection is what is going to lead them to hell. Now, before they reach that point, uh, it, they, they are covered by their parents. Um, that's, not, that's not the right way of putting it. They, God, God is righteous. God is going to judge appropriately. Uh, but at the same time, yes, God is compassionate. He's not going to punish someone who has no ability to choose right from wrong. I mean... The, the gospel talks about the fact that Jesus, before he knew the difference between right and wrong, would be aware of his ministry. And so that, that is where we, I would say, where we go to, saying that there is a point at which children are aware of what they're doing. Until then, God is not going to punish them for what they're not aware of. So, so we're going to move on here. We're going to move on. Because I really can't go more into it than what we've already said. Uh, there, there gets to be a point where this is one of those things where I can't say, look at this one verse right here, and this is the verse I'm going to stand on and say, this is where I base my theology. Um, so we've done our best to explain it as, from a human perspective, and this is one of the things I highly encourage you all as you read through your Bible. Look for it. Look for passages that talk about this so that you can read and know and grow in your understanding of who God is. So how can we apply this passage to our lives? Uh, well, first off, for anyone in Christ... We should be filled with thankfulness. Now, let's look at the last two verses of this passage as we, we wrap up here. Jesus says, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Every last one of us here tonight, hearing this, has been blessed in ways that the Old Testament prophets and the saints, the men and women of old, uh, could have only dreamed about. People throughout history longed to be where we are today. I mean, think about Daniel. Daniel was given the prophecy that in seven weeks, Jerusalem would be rebuilt. In uh, 62 weeks, there's going to be some major event that would happen. And then there's going to be this one last week, and crazy things would be happening during this last week. And Daniel gets this prophecy, and he spends three weeks anguishing like just torn up inside. He was physically sick because of how much this prophecy waited on him. And it took an angel coming and saying, Daniel, Daniel, do not be afraid. Be at peace. And that's what it took for him to calm down. But even then, he still only got to see in a mirror dimly the things that were going to be coming. Uh, I mean, today we can go, okay, yeah, this prophecy is talking about how the seven, each day of the week was a year, so each week was seven years. Jesus was saying, 49 years, Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt. In 433 years, Christ would come. Then we got this one last week of the tribulation, the last seven years. But Daniel didn't get to know any of this. Or how about Habakkuk? You guys remember from your winter camp, Habakkuk? You think he would have longed to know some of these things? While God was saying, we're going to punish Israel using this wicked nation? I think Habakkuk would have liked to have known some of this. Not only do we have the full revelation of the Bible to learn from and grow from spiritually, I mean, we live in an age where I can go online on my, on my phone, I can install apps and get unlimited commentaries just about. Good commentaries. There's a lot of bad stuff out there too, but I can get good biblical commentaries to help me understand these difficult passages. I can listen to sermons online uh, from Pastor Dusty and other 
men throughout the church who, uh, who are, are, are well-founded. We live in a time where we are blessed beyond all comprehension. A time that the righteous men and women of old longed for. And we should be filled with thankfulness because of it. The second way we should apply this is to be mindful of what a parable is over the upcoming weeks. We're, we're going to be doing a lot of talking on parables in the weeks to come. And I want you to keep in mind why Jesus is speaking in parables. The reason why Jesus himself is telling us that he's choosing to speak to people this way. It's not just a neat way to help us understand hard concepts. It is that. I'm very thankful for that. But that's not all it is. It's a story whose purpose was to reveal the hidden things about heaven for those God had chosen to reveal it to, to obscure it from those who had rejected Christ, and to do it all in accordance with prophecies as prophesied in the scriptures. And finally, you need to be thinking about which camp you're in. Are you one of those to whom understanding has been given? Or are you one of those to whom understanding has been hidden away? I mean, you're not going to be able to understand every, every parable you come to. That, that doesn't mean you're not a believer. The disciples didn't understand every parable they were given. But you still need to be thinking, as you read through the scriptures, which camp am I in? Do I believe in Jesus, or, or am I out in the dark? If it's the latter, I pray that you're going to repent and turn to Christ. Let's go ahead and end our time in a time of prayer. Father, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you that you are not a God who cannot be known or who speaks in riddles. But instead, you clearly decree who you are. You clearly declare your power and your majesty through all creation. We pray that we would be emboldened to spread your gospel to a lost and dying world, and that you would be preparing the hearts of those we witness to. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.